I met a woman a couple of years ago who worked for an auction house in Edinburgh. They did appraisals as well. So she'd see people bringing in their jewelry and art and other antiques, hoping that they were worth something. So she was basically living out the antiques roadshow in Edinburgh. She told me about one frequent visitor to the auction house. This woman loved buying jewelry from charity shops, and then she would always bring that jewelry into the auction house to see if it was worth anything. And occasionally it was worth a little bit more than what she paid for it, but she never sold the jewelry on. She just, like the look of it, wanted to buy it and was interested to see if it was worth anything. So one day, she brings in this necklace, and she paid about two pounds for it in the charity shop, wasn't expecting it to be worth a whole lot more than that. But she takes it into the auction house, and it turns out that that necklace was worth 12,000 pounds. <laughs> now, if the charity shop had known how much that piece of jewelry was worth, I imagine they would have treated it differently. How much we value something affects the way we treat it, the way we handle it. My question for you tonight is, do you know your value? We are continuing our series on birds and the bees and massive questions. Two weeks ago, Luke spoke to us about what is sexual immorality. And he told us how the Bible describes sexual immorality as sex with yourself, sex with someone of the same gender, and sex with someone you aren't married to. If you weren't here for Luke's preach and you have some questions about that, you can listen to his talk on the King's Church website and on our podcast. This is a kind of part two to his talk. We're looking at how can I pursue purity? So it might seem a little strange that I've decided to first answer this question with yet another question, but if you want to pursue purity, it starts here. You need to understand your value. We're going to be focusing on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's come up on the screen behind me, but feel free to get out your Bibles or pull it up on your phone. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 11 to 20, starting about halfway through verse 11. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your, members, your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. 
All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So this is part of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. It was written around 55 AD. Corinth was a Roman colony, and it was one of the most influential cities in southern Greece. It was cosmopolitan. On an international trading route, it housed a mix of different cultures and religions. Think of international cities like London and New York today, or even Edinburgh. There was an emphasis on social status, how much money you were earning, and there was also rampant sexual immorality. You may have noticed that several of the preaches in this series have focused heavily on passages from 1 Corinthians. And that isn't because they were a prudish, conservative society that had mastered sexual ethics. Quite the opposite. The culture had a casual view of sex, and this was influencing the church. We get a glimpse of this culture throughout the letter. In the passage we read, Paul calls out prostitution because it was a problem among some in the church. Paul also describes some of the common Corinthian sayings in these verses. In verse 12, I have the right to do anything. In verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Corinthians typically saw the physical body as being separate and distinct from the soul of a person. They believed you could do whatever you wanted physically and it wouldn't actually affect your soul or who you are. They might have said, sex is just physical. It doesn't mean anything. In its attitude to sex, Corinthian culture isn't miles away from Western culture today. So Paul could be writing this letter to us in Edinburgh. In urging the church in Corinth to pursue purity, Paul starts by reminding them of their status. In verse 11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So that's where I'd like to begin too. Which brings me back to my original question. Do you know your value? In Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we discover that mankind was created in the image of God. That fact, established at the very beginning of the story of the world, gives all humans an inherent value. That is true of everyone, whether you know Jesus or not. If you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, we are so glad that you're here. You are welcome just as you are. You don't have to agree with us to come along. We still love you and want to welcome you and want to get to know you. We believe that you are valuable, that you were made in the image of God. But I hope you'll see by the end of the night that Jesus has more for you. Paul, in these verses that we've read, focuses on the distinct value inherited by those who choose to follow Jesus. 
If you're a Christian, whether you've just made a decision five minutes ago, or you've known and loved Jesus for five decades, Paul gives you three descriptions of your value in Christ. And we're gonna look at each of these in more detail. The first, you are married. In this series, we've spoken about the influences around us and how they shape our view of marriage, singleness, and sex, which got me thinking about some of the cliched romantic statements that we often hear in TV and in films. Statements like, you complete me. You make me want to be a better person. I didn't know what love was until I met you. With you, I feel whole. When I'm with you, life just makes sense. Many of us, if we're honest, have this desire to find our meaning in another person. Films, TV, and probably your friends and family have been telling you that in order to fulfill these deep longings, what you need is a relationship. And they're almost right. What they probably mean is that you need a relationship with a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a spouse or fiance. But these very real longings you have can only be satisfied in a relationship, yes, but in a relationship with Jesus. He is the only one that these statements can be true of. He completes me. He makes me want to be a better person. I didn't know what love was until I met him. John Newton, the author of the hymn, Amazing Grace, said this. He made us to be happy, but he made us for himself and gave us a capacity and vastness of desire which only he himself can satisfy. Throughout Paul's letters, he likens our relationship with Jesus to a marriage. In his second letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 11, verse two, he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And in the passage we read earlier, in verses 15 to 17, he writes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. When Paul says the two will become one flesh, he's quoting the description of marriage that we find in Genesis. The best part of any romantic comedy is the grand romantic gesture that happens at the end of the film. It's Meg Ryan rushing up the Empire State Building in Sleepless in Seattle, or it's Matthew McConaughey speeding down the streets of New York to try and catch Kate Hudson in her taxi, or the classic rushing past airport security. I don't know how they did that without a ticket, <laughs> but to catch someone just before they board their plane. And no matter how crazy or kind of stalkerish the gesture is, something in us swoons and wishes that someone would do it for us. Jesus' grand romantic gesture to you cost him everything. It meant leaving the comfort and glory of heaven to come to earth where he would be ignored and hated. 
It meant dying the death of a criminal, humiliated by the people he loves, by the people he came to save. The films can keep their dramatic airport goodbyes. We have the cross. If you're looking for your value in the person you have beside you, find it in Jesus. Let's face it, Jesus is way out of your league. But he chose you to marry. He loved you first. He loves you best. Let his love motivate you to pursue purity. Do you want to know how valuable you are? Look at the king who chose you for his bride. You are married. Also, you are the temple. So in the beginning, God was with mankind in the garden. Adam and Eve saw God face to face. They walked with him and talked to him. That was always God's design, to dwell with people. Adam and Eve then disobeyed God, and along with ushering pain and heartache and death into the world, they put a distance between God and humans. From this point onward, humans were banished from his presence, divorced from the God who loves them. But God began his plan to find a way back to us. He drew near to Abraham and called him out of the wilderness and promised to bless the world through his family. God then chose Moses to lead his people and act as his messenger. Eventually, under Moses, the Israelites, or God's people, built the tabernacle, an extravagant tent where God could literally set up camp with them. Many years later, under King David and his son Solomon, this tent became a building, the temple, and it was spectacular. Made mostly of gold and silver, and so much bronze, iron, timber, and stone that the Bible says it was beyond weighing. It took 183,000 people seven years to build it, and it was glorious. There were tables inside of it made of gold, forks and bowls and basins made entirely of gold and silver, lamps made of gold. There were elaborate carvings and sculptures. But where God really wanted to be wasn't a lavish building. Where he really wanted to be, where he's always wanted to be, was with you. In the temple, God's presence was in the innermost room where very few could go. It was a sacred, holy place, and because of our sin, we were still exiled from him. So, Jesus came. God in human form, the closest God had ever been since the garden, but still not close enough. So Jesus died and sin died with him, then he reversed death itself to remove every obstacle keeping us from our Father God. Finally, all the obstacles dealt with, God poured out his spirit. And now he gives us his presence to dwell in us. You are the temple. 
If you know and love Jesus, you are the dwelling place of God on earth. In verse 18 of our passage, Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Paul makes a direct comparison between the temple made of gold and silver and elaborately carved and crafted and you. And the temple wasn't just expensive, it was sacred. This is a photo of the Calcutta cup. <laughs> and to English and Scottish rugby fans, it's a pretty sacred trophy. It was made in 1878 from rupees that were melted down and then fashioned by hand into this. The original is carefully guarded and it's not let out very often. But after one England-Scotland match in the 80s, two players, Dean Richards and John Jeffrey, got really drunk, stole the trophy and played football with it in the street. <laughs> one of their teammates said about that night, I've no idea how they got hold of the cup and I didn't see them leave with it, but it disappeared and the next thing we heard was that it was in a gutter in Prince's Street. The cup was unrecognizable, it was so damaged. And as you can imagine, the next morning, the players were horrified at what they'd done. Richards, one of the footballers, said afterwards, I was feeling pretty bad. I went back south by train and I spent the whole journey sitting there thinking, oh no, what have I done? A supporter came up to me on the train and said he had been at the game and had seen me chucking a fake cup about later on. I couldn't bring myself to tell him it was the real thing. Your body is infinitely more sacred and more valuable than this cup. Don't treat it casually. Don't chuck it about. You are a sacred vessel that houses the Spirit of God. If you want to know how valuable you are, remember the Spirit that is in you. Thirdly, you are not your own. In verses 19 to 20, Paul reminds us, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So honor God with your body. Paul is alluding to the slave market in these verses. The image he paints is that we, all of us, were slaves. Slaves to our own wrongdoing, to our foolish mistakes, to our selfishness and sin. Jesus purchased us out of that life of slavery. And in so doing, we became his, his very own treasure. In an individualistic and rights-obsessed culture, the idea of not being your own doesn't always sit well with us. Paul tries to help you see that your choice has always been between two masters. It's either sin or Jesus. There's no other option. Being enslaved to sin means being ruled by death and destruction and selfishness. Belonging to Jesus means eternal life. 
My husband Chris's grandparents, Alf and Kath, gave their life to Jesus later in life, in their early 50s. Alf was an expert craftsman. He loved working with wood in particular. This is a photo of a rocking horse that he made for Chris and his sister when they were little. And it's actually so well made that it can still support their weight today. But I won't tell you how I know that. <laughs> he was often making gifts for people out of wood or helping them fix up their house. About 10 years ago, Kath was diagnosed with dementia and Alf quickly became her full-time carer. He was completely devoted to looking after her. When she was eventually moved into a nursing home, he visited her every day, spent hours at a time with her, even when he was battling cancer himself. The last years of Alf's life were characterized by a care and concern for his ailing wife. A couple of years ago, God spoke to him. It happened one morning. He wasn't sure if he was asleep or awake, and he had this vision. He saw Jesus standing in front of him and this huge staircase. And Jesus looked at him and said, Alf, come with me. I want to show you something. And Alf, who was pretty weak at the time and feeling unwell, looked at the stairs and said, I'm not sure I could make it up all those stairs. Jesus said, that's okay. You can get your walking stick and we'll go together. So they climb up these stairs together quite slowly. And about halfway up, Alf realizes he doesn't need his walking stick anymore. So he tosses it aside and they keep climbing together. And when they get to the top, Jesus looks at him and says, Alf, you're a craftsman. And you see, I've been preparing this place for Kath. I'd like you to help me finish it. Alf passed away shortly after that. When I heard that story, I was astounded by the depths of the kindness and the gentleness and the goodness of Jesus. Why on earth would you bow to your own whims and fancies when you could bow to him? If you're ever doubting your worth and need a reminder, Remember who you belong to, Jesus. He paid your price. He is your keeper and you are his treasure. So I'll ask again, do you know your value? I'm aware that I'm laboring this point, but it's because where I've failed in pursuing purity, this has been why. It's because I was looking for my value my self-worth and my meaning in all the wrong places. And I know the hurt and the heartache that that leads to. I believe God wants to heal those wounds in some of you tonight and to remind you of the truth. If you aren't a Christian and you struggle with self-confidence and self-worth, these are free gifts on offer for you today. There is such peace and reassurance when you let God define your value instead of trying to figure it out for yourself. 
I want to give some practical advice about pursuing purity now, but I don't want you to rush on from these truths. If God has been speaking to you about your worth and your value, I want you to keep listening to him on that. Keep listening as he tells you over and over again that you are his delight. Because how we live should be a response to our understanding of these truths. That you are married, you are the temple, you are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. And these are just some practical ideas to get you started. First, cut it out. Paul says in verse 18, to flee sexual immorality. This isn't passive, we're urged to take action. That might mean cutting some things out of your life, that might mean cutting some people out of your life. Jesus, when telling us how to treat sexual immorality, gives us this advice in Matthew chapter five. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now don't start cutting off your limbs and gouging out your eyes just yet. But don't ignore the urgency of these verses either. Jesus gives us very little room to make excuses. What excuses have you come up with to justify staying in tempting situations? Maybe it's, I couldn't possibly get rid of my iPhone. I can't live without it. Or they might leave me if we stop doing this together. Or everybody does it. What is God prompting you to cut out of your life to help you pursue purity? It may sound silly, but one thing that I cut out around the time I got married was chick flicks, specifically ones where the main plot is a relationship. That's why all of my earlier romantic comedy examples were just a little bit out of date. I love films, I love stories, I love getting swept up and caught up in a really good plot line. But I find the way that most chick flicks portray relationships really unhelpful. As I watch, I can feel it toying with my emotions. Now, I'm not saying that you all need to stop watching rom-coms, but for some of you, there are things that God is bringing to mind even now that he wants you to leave behind. In Matthew 5, Jesus is asking you what you value most. Is it the temporary pleasure that's here today and gone tomorrow, or the eternal riches that he offers you? Don't make excuses. Listen to the Holy Spirit as he leads you. Number two, for husbands and wives, have sex. Pursuing purity doesn't stop when you get married. In fact, the stakes are raised significantly. Once you're married, if you neglect to pursue purity, you no longer just insult Jesus who loves you. 
disrespect the sacred temple of the Holy Spirit and disobey your king, you now also hurt your spouse and put your marriage at risk. So the Bible encourages married couples to have sex. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes, Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. For those of you who are single, you probably think it's ludicrous that husbands and wives would need to be reminded to have sex, but they do. Satan will do all he can to get you into bed before you're married and all he can to get you out of bed after you're married. The biggest obstacle here for married couples is probably time. Life is busy, I get it. But make time for this. Paul is saying when we don't, we leave ourselves and our marriages vulnerable. For those of you who hope to be married one day, this one's for you. Date someone who cares just as much about glorifying God as you do. Practicing self-control when you're in a relationship is going to be tough. To stand a chance, you both need to be equally committed to it. In 2 Corinthians, Paul warns against being unequally yoked with unbelievers. A yoke is a wooden beam that's mounted on two animals, usually oxen, to enable them to pull a heavy load. Two oxen of similar size and strength can share the weight and carry the load much further and longer. But if you have one tall, strong oxen and one short, weak oxen, pulling the weight becomes much more difficult and exhausting. The stronger animal ends up carrying all of the weight and eventually tires and burns out or gives up. Paul uses this image to help us think about how we are spiritually yoked in relationships. If you are the only one in your relationship pulling the weight of wanting to obey Jesus, you won't last very long. The other person will pull you in too many different directions and will eventually pull you away from pursuing purity and maybe even from following Jesus entirely. Date someone who will help you choose to do what honors God over what's easy and feels good at the time. And finally, ask for help. Everyone finds this hard. And God has put you in a church community surrounded by people who love you and want to help you. If you feel God prompting you to make some difficult decisions, ask a friend to help hold you accountable. If you're in a situation and don't know what to do, ask a leader for advice. When I was single and when Chris and I were dating and since we've been married, I've benefited so much from asking people for advice.
I know you were probably hoping for a quick fix or maybe a 10 steps how to pursue purity, but this is going to be difficult. It will mean making decisions that don't feel good or easy. The last film that I saw at the cinema was Darkest Hour. Great film. It's an odd experience watching a film where you kind of know what's going to happen. We know that the British government had been drawing lines in the sand for Hitler, saying, don't remilitarize the Rhineland, and then Hitler would cross that line, so the British government would draw a new one. Don't take Czechoslovakia, and then Hitler would cross that line. And this went on and on. So war breaks out, and in the film, we see how desperate most of the leaders in Britain are to end the struggle of war and make peace with Hitler. Fighting was just too hard. But Churchill kept fighting because he knew that true peace couldn't be negotiated with a tyrant like Hitler. And we're watching the film, knowing the end of the story, thinking, keep going, you're going to win. All you have to do is keep fighting. In this fight for sexual purity, you have an enemy, and he cannot be negotiated with. Some of you are making compromises, drawing lines in the sand, saying here and no further. Then you cross that line, so you draw a new one, saying here and no further. But you will keep drawing these lines further and further back until you've lost all your ground. Stop compromising. The enemy that you're trying to strike deals with won't respect your boundaries. And we know the end of our story. Jesus has the victory. All you have to do is keep fighting. And God doesn't leave you unprepared. He's given you weapons and armor to help you in the fight. He's put his spirit in you. In Ephesians 6, it says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm.